Why do we come together? Why do we do this? Some of you hate that moment where I make you say hello to people around you. Uh, church can be awkward, right? The gathering can be awkward. Some Sundays are awesome. They just connect with you. Maybe you know the songs. Maybe you appreciate the songs and like the songs. Sometimes the sermon uh, means something to you. It connects. Sometimes it goes too long and it totally disconnects. Other times the music, it's like, I don't know these songs. I don't like these songs. I don't like those instruments. These people are weird. Depending on week to week, sometimes the building is really hot and stuffy. Other times it's really cold and if you didn't bring a sweatshirt, you shiver through the whole thing, right? These are some of the dynamics. And sometimes you feel dragged here by a family member or a friend. Sometimes, you, you know, you're committed and you're here for a purpose and a reason and you know and you understand. There's these ebbs and flows that all of us experience in church life, in gathering on a Sunday morning. We know, if you've been around Park, we talk about this a lot, the church is not an event. It's not the Sunday morning gathering. It's a people committed to one another doing life together. And so then there's theological reasons too, outside of the practical reasons about like, or questions about why we gather or, you know, you go on vacation, you miss a couple weeks and it's like, that wasn't so bad. God doesn't feel so distant to me. I, I, I can maintain a relationship with him. So there's these practical reasons and also theological reasons like the church is a people committed to one another. In the New Testament, it primarily was people scattered into homes doing life together, reading the scriptures together. So there's these questions that we have, and, and some of you haven't asked those questions, and you're just like the dutiful type, right? Like you grew up in an era where the majority of the community went to eight church on a Sunday morning. It was like a normal rhythm. That's not the normal rhythm anymore, is it? My kids are involved in St. Louis Park activities now, and there's so many on Sunday mornings. And, and periodically, I start to wonder, why do I do this? I get paid to do it. So that's one reason, right? Is there any other reason that I come? And honestly, I wonder that sometimes. And I'm busy throughout the week and things are going on and it feels like a chore to come to church every now and then. Can I admit that as your pastor? You guys are way more spiritual than me. You're like, it never feels like a chore. I'm always delighted and glad-hearted to go to church. Some of you might be that way. Not all of you are. And, and every now and then I need to come back to the scriptures, and I need to remind myself of what we're doing. I'm not doing this for a paycheck. I'm not doing this out of tradition. I'm not doing this to keep God happy with me. There's much deeper reasons to why we gather. Even the most faithful church attender will spend about 0.7% of their time attending church this year. 0.7% of your time. That means public math is hard. That leaves 99.3% of the rest of your time outside of the Sunday morning, right? So why does all this time and energy and effort go into this moment? We need to remind ourselves of that. This morning, we're going to see that in Psalm 143. This last week, as I was thinking about why we gather, because honestly, after last Sunday, for whatever reason, I was like, I don't, I think I'm over it. <laughs> And this is not like a confession where I'm going to quit or anything. I love this church. But my emotions go up and down with everything in life and sometimes related to the church gathering. And so after last Sunday, I was like, I'm so over the Sunday morning. I think it was hot last week and I didn't feel great and whatever. And so this week, I'm prepping. I'm like, all right, I got to preach again. Let's turn out the sermon mill yet again. God, what do you want me to say? 
And I was working through the Psalms, and this Psalm, Psalm 145, just struck me as a needed reminder for my soul about why we do what we do, why we gather. So I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as I read Psalm 145. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. I shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of the Lord look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Lord, I pray that this morning would be a blessing to you, that we would bless your holy name forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. As I look at this passage here, there's some reasons that it gives us for why we gather. This is a song of David, the the king of Israel, and the Psalms are the psalm book or a poem book for the people of God, the ancient people of God in the Old Testament. They would gather. They had this regular rhythm of gathering. So one of the reasons that we gather is because it's a regular rhythm of the people of God throughout the generations, throughout both the Old and the New Testament. That's like one of the main reasons that we gather. We're stepping into this ancient, ancient tradition of the people of God to gather. But then this psalm gives us some of the context and some of the content, some of the reality for why we gather that it's good for you and I to come back to and to remember so that we don't slip into just going through the motions, doing this out of religious duty, doing it out of habit, doing it for the wrong reasons or for no reason at all. And so the first reason that we're going to see here in this psalm in verses 1 through 3 of why we gather, it's to extol and bless, and to praise God. David writes, I will extol you, my God and king. I love this imagery even. David here is king. He's the king of Israel. He's a prominent king. He's a powerful king. He's a a king that has all power and authority at his hand, and he is calling God his king. 
the person in political and religious power over Israel, knows that he's not the ultimate power, the ultimate authority. He submits to God as his king. But he says, I will extol you, my God and king. I will bless your name forever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. These first three verses remind us of what we do when we gather, our posture when we come together. To extol means to exalt or to lift God on high. Some of you are hand raisers. I love that. It's this physical posture of being reminded, God, you are on high, and I'm reaching towards you, or I'm giving you praise. I am extolling you. I am exalting you. Some of you aren't hand raisers. That's fine. But maybe this verse would encourage you to every now and then give a little physical posture towards God. David says, we, we gather. And this psalm, this song written by David, it's coming from his heart, his intimate relationship with God, but it's to instruct the community of Israel. They would sing these songs in temple together. They would sing these songs as they would gather together. And he says, we gather to extol God, to lift him high. With our voices, with our songs, with our preaching, with our interacting with one another. He says, we gather to bless. To bless. This actually means to, to bend the knee in honor. So we see these physical posturings that David gives us in the beginning. I, I, I will extol you. I will lift you high. I will praise you. I will lift you up and exalt you on high. I will bless you. I will bow down before you in submission and humility, giving you honor and worth. And out of that, praise. The word praise means to boast about, to make much of. And that's exactly what we do when we gather, right? We, we come and our words, the content of what we sing and say, it's to lift God on high, to make much of who he is. And then we come and, and actually, every now and then, we, we kneel. And, and I, I think we should do it more often. To bless God, to posture ourselves in humility. I really like that the Catholic Church has kneelers. Now, that can fall into a rhythm, right? And sometimes they need to be reminded why there's kneelers there and what it means to bow the knee before God in reverence. And this is what David is reminding the people of God about. When we come, we gather to extol God, to lift him on high, to, to bend the knee, to bless his name, and to praise him, to boast about him, to sing about his worth and his glory and his goodness. And then from there, David moves into this big unpacking of what it means to gather. We gather to commend God to the next generations. Look at verses 4, and we'll walk through verses 4 through 13 together. He says, One generation shall commend your works to another. This is an important key to why the people of God have gathered throughout the centuries and why the people of God continue to gather. It's to commend or it's to pass on who God is and what God does to the next generation. And when I say to the next generation, like don't think about just the kids here now, right? That's a big, big, big piece of it. But we gather as a mixed community. I love that God has blessed our church with different generations. And it's passing God on. It's commending God from one generation to the next. It's from the, the boomers to the busters. 
And it's from the busters to the millennials. And it's from the millennials to the Gen Zers. And then it's to whatever comes after that. And, and it's not just one to the next, right? It's like sometimes a buster, pass, if you don't know what that means, it's a generational name, right? A buster passes on the generation to a millennial. Sometimes a boomer reminds, I'm going to get all my generations mixed up, right? Let, let, let me use ages. Sometimes the 80-year-old commends God to the 10-year-old. And sometimes when the, when, when the 60-year-old is in kids' park classroom teaching the 10-year-old the things of God, commending God to that 10-year-old, sometimes a 10-year-old has a, has a comment or asks a question or, 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 or says something that recommends God to the 60-year-old. It goes both ways, right? And it jumps generations and it skips generations and the generations come together and we meld together in one big, messy family to commend God to one another, to pass him on from generation to generation, to tell of his worth and his value, to proclaim, as I love verse, uh, in between verse 13 and 14, there's this little bracketed that's not in the original manuscripts, uh, it says, the Lord is faithful in all of his words and kind in all of his works. And uh, some people think that there was just like an a, a editing error in the scribes way back in the day. Because look at verse 17. It says, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. It's basically the same verse. So some people think it was scribes just kind of put it in there twice. We don't really know. It's not in the most original manuscripts, but it is in early manuscripts. But this is what we're doing, right? This is what it means to commend. We come together and we talk about God's words. Like, we, we need the generations. We need each other to commend who God is and what God has done to the next generations. It, it, it's like we work as salesmen and women for God. Honestly, that's kind of this idea here that David is getting across in verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another. It, it's when somebody who's experienced in the things of God somebody who's been trained in the things of God, tries to convince you of the things of God. Now, this can be done poorly, right? And there's probably some people that that even kind of triggers something for them. They're like, oh, yeah, I know. Kind of like control and manipulation. Not, not that. Not control and manipulation. Like a real sales pitch. Like I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord is good. Those of you who know my wife and have interacted with her a little bit, you know that she can sell you on Costco in general. And anything that you ought to buy at Costco and ought not to buy at Costco. Because she's experienced. And she, like, I, I kid you not, like, all of our friends, she's like, she gets no commission. I'm like, you need to go into sales. Like, all of our friends now, like, buy what she buys and listens to what she says because she's commending Costco products to our same generation mostly. Right? But there's this, there's this experiential sales pitch. That she shares it, and the people who know her and trust her, they're like, oh, if Brittany commends this coffee to me, I'm going to go to Costco and buy that coffee, even though it's cheap Costco coffee. Like, for some of you, it's a step up from Folgers. For some of you, it's a step down. <laughs> and yet, she's doing it. And this is what we're called to do. Commend God, sell God from experience. When I, when I try to convince Brittany to go into sales, she's like, I can't do it because if I don't believe in it, I can't get anyone to, like, I have no interest in convincing someone of something that I don't believe in myself. And in sales, you're certainly going to get into that. And then if there's this, like, you know, 
contingency or like she just, whatever, she won't go into sales because of those reasons. But because she has experienced the goodness of the things that she finds at Costco, she just wants to share the information. She's an evangelist. This is how the church works with God. We we share his goodness and his glory. David gives us this idea. He, he even tells us how we do this, right? In this passage, verses 4 through 13, he's going to tell us how we commend God to the next generations and from generation to generation and, and what about God we commend to each other. Look at it with me. So verse 4, he says, one generation shall commend your works to another. So that's what we're commending, the works of God. We're also going to commend the character of God. We'll see that in a minute. But he gives us this path for how we do this. He says, one generation shall commend your works to another, shall sell who God is and what God does to the next generation, and they shall declare. There's the first way that we commend God to the next generation. We declare, and this word for declare, it means to kind of uncover, to confess. When we hear the word confess, we often think about like confessing our sins, right? Those of you who grew up in kind of a Catholic setting, you're like, oh, confessional. I go to the confession booth, confess my sins, or priest, go through steps of confession. Those of you, those of you who grew up in more of an evangelical setting, you're like, oh, like go to an accountability group and confess my sins. And yeah, that, that can be part of it. We need to be a people who learn how to confess our brokenness and our wounding and our sin. But we also are a people who confess. We're confessional Christians, right? We confess who God is and what God does. That's what David is getting at here in this passage. This word declare means to confess God's mighty acts, to uncover them, to unfold them. And then he goes on, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, his eyes are fixed on God. He's just awestruck with who God is and God's splendor and majesty. And he says, and on your works, I will meditate. So here's the next way. The, the first way that we commend, and this is not exhaustive, right? We gather as a church for more than the things that we're going to cover this morning. And we commend for more than, in more than the ways that we're going to cover this morning. But I just want to look at what's here. First way that we commend is to declare, to uncover, to confess. Second way that we commend God to the next generations is to meditate. That's to muse. It's to ponder. It's to, to slow down. And actually, this is some of the internal work. This is where, like, your sales pitch or your commending who God is and what God does to the next generation comes from a place of intimacy and experience and interaction with God. You're not trying to sell some theological or doctrinal truths or, or sell some concept about the way that the world works and a creator and salvation that you haven't experienced yourself. He says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your works, I will meditate. David here is saying, I, I will I will muse on, I will ponder who God is and what God has done. I will have this deep, intimate interaction with God so that, verse 6, the next way that we commend, they shall speak of your mighty, of your might and your awesome deeds. When I speak about God, it's not forced. It's not coerced. It's not because I went to some seminar that told me that I needed to be an evangelist and talk about my faith. No, it, it, it bubbles out of you. We talk about what we love. 
the things that we meditate on, the things that we think about, the things that we ponder, and some of you are a little more introverted and reserved, and so you don't need to change your personality. That's fine. Some of you are going to talk about Jesus more often, more readily, more freely. Some of you are going to spend more time meditating. Some of you are going to spend more time, as verse 6 says, speaking. And that's fine. The point here is that this is how we commend God to the next generation. We declare, some of us are, are primary in confessing and uncovering. Some of us, our primary mode is to meditate, to think, to ponder, to dwell. We all need elements of these, but in God's grace and kindness, he wires all of us differently. And so meditate, that's a, that, that's a way that we do this. All of us individually, but then us corporately as a church. Verse 6, they shall speak of your might and awesome deed. The Hebrew word here for speak means speak. Like open up your mouth and talk. Right? We talk about God. Religion is not private. Well, religion is foolish. God is not private. Right? Religion, it's institutionalized. We're talking about a personal living relationship with the creator of the universe and a gathered people. That's what the church is. It's a gathered people. It's not an institution. It's not a religion. It is a gathering of people who are commending God from generation to generation. And so David says, they shall speak of your might and your awesome deeds. We gather and we testify. We testify to who God is. And we scatter and we testify to who God is. He says, I will declare your greatness. So he's used that word declare twice. This is a different Hebrew word. Uh, So that first one is to kind of confess and uncover. The second one is to recount and retell. It's to retell the story of who God is and what God does. Kids Park volunteers, thank you for going into Kids Park and retelling the stories of old. Every week when we gather, our kids go into rooms and there's people who remind them about how God interacted with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the people of Israel and how Jesus came in the flesh and he walked among us and how he called disciples to himself. Thank you for doing that. That's vital and necessary. I'm a dad of three kids in this congregation and I'm so grateful for you commending God to the next generation. Many of you, You're here today because somebody commended, multiple people commended God to you throughout the generations. The the church gathering, you would come and you heard the word declared. You saw people meditating on God. You heard the, the glorious wonders of God being spoken. And then this declare again, it's this retelling, retelling of the stories of old. I know sometimes when we gather, we'll end up preaching Passages that you're like, oh, this story, sometimes that's how I feel about preaching. I'm like, oh, this story again? And we need it. We need the reminder. We need to retell, declare the greatness of God. Verse 7, he gives us another one. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. And remember, this is the, the gathering So it's like a communal thing to commend God to one another. It's not just the pastor's job or the worship team's job. We have a a platform staged way to commend God, and this is actually an ancient tradition. Like there would be a prophet, a, a, a king, a priest who would stand up and declare, commend God. But also it's the community, this idea of pouring forth. Verse 7, that's one of the ways that we commend God. It's, It's gushing forward like a fountain or a river or a spring. 
It's a result of this meditating on God. I've, I, I've pondered God. I've, I've spent time interacting with God. And out of the inner working of who God is and what God is doing, I'm speaking about him. I'm pouring forth praise. I'm extolling him. I'm blessing him. It's coming from inside. And then the last way that we commend God in this passage, he closes up this kind of, this is how we do it in verse 7. He says, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. We gather to sing. This is one of the ways that we commend God. We sing. We sing and we sing. It's one of the reasons why we have our kids in here, even though it's so much more efficient space-wise. Like in the second service, we don't really have space for the kids, but we're at this point, I don't want to get legalistic about anything, but like I'm very hesitant to take the kids out for the singing because this is one of the ways that we proclaim God to the generations. This is the way that you and I have learned the story of God and that we remind ourselves of the story of God, of his goodness and his greatness. We sing. And it doesn't really matter how we feel about the instrumentation right? One of the glorious things about this church is that we have multiple generations. Some churches, like, they do different worship styles for different generations and whatever. They're trying their best, and, but there, there's, like, there's, there's some concerns with that, right? If you, like, have a service that appeals to 20-year-olds and a service that appeals to 30-year-olds and then a service that appeals to 70- and 80-year-olds because different music style, and, like, I know it can be frustrating sometimes, to have songs that you're less familiar with or instruments that, you're less, that you less prefer. But this is why we gather. To sing aloud. So loud music is biblical, amen? Yeah, let's go. Actually, and the most biblically, again, this is not a legalistic thing, but the instruments that are most common in Scripture are the, the lyre, which we don't play, the harp, which we don't play, and the clanging of cymbals. Drums, we do do that one. This has nothing to do with instrumentation, though, right? It's about the heart. We gather to sing, and this is how we commend God to the next generations. It doesn't matter the instrumentation. The, a, a phrase that has struck me over the years is that mature Christians are easily edified. That means if you're the type who likes the organ and hymnals, maturity would say, and I can be edified by the guitar and the drums. And if you're the type that likes the guitar and the drums, that means I can open up a hymnal and be edified by the organ. By a different style of music, by a different form of music, because of why we gather and what I'm singing and who God is. And this is what we do. This is how the future generations will come to walk with God. God upholds his covenant, and so he, he's promised to draw people to himself. Many of our kids are going to walk with God because God is going to hold them and keep them and draw them. Some of your kids might be wandering from God right now, or you might be wondering, or maybe you yourself, you're wandering and wondering, well, God has made a covenant, and he is wooing people. He's drawing people in. He's bringing generations in. And one of the ways, one of the methods, one of the modes that God uses to draw people in and to keep people and to preserve people is when you and I gather to commend God to one another by declaring by meditating, by speaking, 
by, again, declaring, those two different declares kind of confess and then retell, pouring forth our praise and singing. That's how we commend God. And then David goes on to to talk about what we commend, right? Verses 8 through 14 is, or through 13 is kind of like a what we commend. So he gets into the content now of when we gather. He tells us how we commend, declare, sing, meditate, pour forth, and now he tells us what. Look at the character of God here. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And just theologically here, if you're curious about that, that, that's common grace. There's other verses where it says that, that God reigns on the righteous and the wicked, that he sends rains, that he waters the earth, that the sun comes up, that food is provided for those who follow him and those who don't follow him. God has common grace, goodness, and mercy to all. Some receive him as Lord and King and some reject him as Lord and King, but his common grace and his mercy and his goodness is available to and poured out on all. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power and make known to the children of man your mighty deeds. And the glorious splendor of your kingdom, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So verses 4 through 7 give us the how we commend. Verses 8 through 13 give us kind of the, the what the who. Who is this God that we're commending and what is he like? He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's good to all. He's merciful over all. He is a good king of a good kingdom that is constantly growing and expanding. Amen? That's who God is. We get, when we gather and when we scatter too, this is what we do. And, and, and on this idea, right, verse 4, one generation shall commend God's works to another, and then he gives us the how, and then he gives us the what and the who. Let me just remind you, and I love this church because you are really good at this. Some of you have been hurt by churches that have not been so good at this, though, that when we gather in the way that we commend God to the next generations is to talk about who God is and what God does. It's not to ridicule kids for what they wear or to try and shame kids for the, their behavior. And when I say kids, I, I, like even generation, right? Some of you have been so hurt. And this is, this is why this is important to me and why we need to be reminded of why we gather because this is essential. That when we get together, we come to boast about God. We extol God. We bless God. We praise God. We commend God to one another. We don't try and conform people to a dress code. We don't try to conform people to a certain worship style. We don't try to conform people to a certain way of doing church or expressing our love for God. You are really good at that church. Thank you. I feel so loved and supported and I have so much hope for my kids' future walk with God because you have shown me and my family God's grace. 
Look at verse 8 again. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. Like, what if that was the character of the churches? That is a character of Park. Thank you. Let's keep running in that direction. That's how we commend God to one another. Just this morning, in one of the songs, we sang, I will sing of the goodness of God. If God is good, and if he is abounding in goodness and mercy, you and I ought to be abounding in goodness and mercy, in grace and love. And this is what we do when we gather here at Park. Our sermons, our songs, our kids' park ministry, hopefully our interactions with one another in the building, in the hallways, are all intended for us to commend God to one another. Who God is and what God does. Now, again, it's not all about the gathering, right? We need to learn how to do this in our scattering, in all of our areas and spheres of life. We commend God to one another. But the Sunday morning gathering works as a catalyst for all of life. It always has. That's how the... the <laughs> you hear the kids out there. I love it. Amazing. And as a parent... Man, sometimes I don't want to come to church on Sundays because trying to preach and deal with kids is a lot. My wife was singing this morning, like, that's a lot. But you graciously commend God to the generations. And this is how the church has operated. The people of God have operated from generation to generation to generation. We declare who God is and what God does. Let's continue on. We also gather to be upheld by God. Look at verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling. Some of you came in this morning feeling at, like you're, you're at the end of your rope. It's been a hard season, a tough season. You feel like you're being beat up and, and chewed up and spit out, and maybe it's your own sin, maybe it's other people's sin, maybe it's just the frustration of living in a broken world, and you just feel like you continually fall down and fall down and fall down, and here this passage reminds us that God upholds us in our falling. Isn't this amazing? If you remember verse 1, look at it, I will extol you, that's us coming together to lift God up, and then in verse 14, as we're falling down, God lifts us up. I love how Psalm 40 says it. Psalm 40, which is another great passage for the gathering. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. As we gather to extol God, to lift him up, he also lifts up those of us who are falling. He pulls us out of the miry bog, out of our depression, out of our anxiety, out of our doubt, out of our weakness, out of our fear. Not, like, not perpetually, we're going to still experience those things, but this is a moment that we come together and we're reminded that we have a powerful God who is able to lift, even for a moment, dark clouds. And he helps us to persevere. He lifts us up. There's a song by Joel Ansett called Plead, which I highly recommend to you. And it's a calm song. Some of you know that I love hardcore music. This is a calm one, so you can listen to it. Here's how the lyrics for this song goes. And I don't know exactly the context that, that Joel Ansett is writing about, if it's about a church gathering or not, but it's about a gathering of people. And it mirrors what David is saying here. David says, The Lord upholds all who are falling. 
Think about a gathering of people. Some feel like they're just at the end of their rope. They're falling into a pit of despair, into the miry bog. Joel writes, there's more pain in this room than we can imagine. We're wearing it in different ways. There's some on our sleeves and some buried deep, and we don't know the right words to pray. There's more shame in this room than we could imagine. It's grabbing our joy by the throats. Pretty depressing, but honest, right? As I think about the people in this church that I know, that I counsel, that I do life with, there's so much pain, more than we can imagine, so much shame, more than we can grapple with. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. And then he turns, and so I love that acknowledgement, right? Like what David's saying, the Lord upholds all those who are falling. In this room right now, some of you feel like you're falling. And some of you might have the strength to help them up. In a different season of life, if you right now feel like you have the strength to help someone else up, you might feel like you're falling later, and hopefully they come along and they have the strength to help you up. But here's the promise from the psalm, is that the Lord upholds all who are falling, Right? So he is our strength, and we get our strength from him to help those who are falling, and sometimes we're needy, and sometimes we're needed. Here's how Joel Ansett turns this song from this idea that there's more pain in this room, there's more shame in this room, we don't know how to pray. He says, with the air I have left, I will plead with my Savior for the faith I can't make on my own. There's more life up ahead than we could imagine. Our sorrows will turn to laughter again. We'll drink wine, and we'll break bread, and we'll boast in our weaknesses. We'll talk of ways we were raised from the dead. It's a beautiful picture as David is capturing here. The Lord upholds all who are falling. We come desperate, needy, falling before God, and he lifts us up. Which the second part of verse 14 captures. It says, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. So again, we see this, this imagery of posturing ourselves before God. When we gather, we posture ourselves in humility, bended knee before God. The way to experience God in the worship gathering and the way to have this be a catalyst for transformation, for commending God from one generation to another, is to come in humility before God. Now, I want to encourage all of us Anytime you feel led during our singing, have you ever feel like just pricked in your heart to humble yourself before God and a posture of kneeling might do that for you? Go ahead and do it. I've been trying to make it a practice myself that sometimes when we, you know, some of the songs that we sing, they talk about kneeling before God. And I, I personally, I'm just trying to like, and I'm not telling you to do this as your pastor, like do what you want to do. But for me, it's a really good thing for my heart to even physically kneel and we see this here in the psalm. The Lord upholds those who are falling, and he raises up all who are bowed down. So there's kind of this, this parallel here to sometimes we, like, it's nothing that we are able to do. We are falling. We are at the end of our rope. Hey, buddies. We're commending God to the next generations. Yeah, these are my kids. And this is how they learn to love Jesus, right, and walk with him. We commend God to one another. And you need them to commend God to you. Where was I? Um, falling, kneeling, right? We, we gather to bow down before God. Sometimes we need to be directed in our own posturing towards God. 
Sometimes you, you may do this on your own, like in your own private worship, you may feel God prompt you or, you know, you just may kneel down on your own. Maybe you're the type who kneels and prays every night over your bedside. That's awesome. Continue to do that. Maybe you've never done that and you're like, I should do that. Maybe you should do that. I think we should take this idea of posturing into our private lives, into our family lives of worship and devotion, but also when we gather, this is part of what we do. David is talking to the gathered congregation. When we are desperate at the end of our rope, God lifts us up, but we also have to come with humility and bow ourselves down before God. This is part of the blessing God that was mentioned in verse one. I will extol God, lift him up, my God and my king, and I will bless your name. I will kneel before you to give you reverence and honor and respect to bless your holy name. One, uh, two more. Next one here, verse 15. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. There's this acknowledgement here in verse 15 that, that when we gather, we gather desperately looking to God. We gather to get our eyes off of ourselves and our own rat race world and all the things that we become busy with. It's to pause, and that's why so many of you are here. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep gathering to fix your eyes on Jesus, as the New Testament says, the author and perfecter of our faith. I don't know if I should share this with you or not, but just this morning I checked my stats from the last week on my phone. I spent an average of five hours and four minutes per day looking at my phone this last week. I work on my phone some. I was driving. I had maps on Spotify, right? So, but, but five hours a day where my eyes are looking at something, or at least there's something kind of grabbing for my attention. And that's not to mention books that I've read and shows that I've watched and all the other things of life that my eyes have been drawn towards, right? That I've spent my time looking at different things. An average of 81 times a day, I picked up my phone to look at it. So I need this time to come together to have a, a, a carved out, window of time to specifically, intentionally fix my eyes on God. And you do too. So thank you for being here and doing this. And then lastly, we gather to receive good from God. Look at how David closes out the psalm. The eyes of all look to you. There's this physical posture where we're gathering to, to get our eyes off of ourselves in our own rat race and onto God. He says, and you give them food in their due season. So he's starting to posture himself now as, as a recipient. He says, you open your hand. God opens up his hand. God's not, God's not withholding from us. He's not tight-gripped with his blessing and his goodness and his character and his love and his grace and his mercy. He doesn't like dole it out in increments based off of our obedience. He opens up his hand. He says, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever. We come we gather with bended knee and wide eyes looking to God, the God who generously opens up his hand. 
We're recipients. He's a giver. We're the, we're the takers in this scenario, in this situation. Many of you came to serve, yet right, you're giving. But we need to pause and be reminded our primary posture before God and with God's people is for us to come as recipients, needy, unbended knee, beggars, asking for God to pour out his goodness. And he has just told us here in this psalm that he will do it. That he comes with open hands, generous hands, giving away who he is and what he does to us. He satisfies our deepest desires. He shows us his kindness. He listens to our cry, and he preserves us. What the beautiful imagery here of these last couple of verses, verses kind of 15 through 21, let them speak to your heart as we transition to communion now. This is where we come every week when we gather at Park Community Church. We come to the communion table to receive God's mercy and grace through the person and work of Jesus. This time is intentionally carved out to remind us that we are recipients, that we come to receive from God who God is and what God has done. And we come to be nourished in our souls by his spirit. I'm going to pray for us, and then when you feel led and ready, if you want to follow Jesus, if you are walking with Jesus, if you want to be filled up with him and have him satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, communion is here as a reminder of who he is and what he's done. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. Lord, I thank you for the way that this body of believers commends you to me. I thank you for the way that I get to commend you to them. Lord, I pray that we would come to the table now receiving good from you. Lord, may we come desperate with open hands. Actually, I'm going to invite you to kneel for a moment with me as I pray. If, if, you're, if you're physically able or willing... I'm going to read the last part of the psalm again, and then we'll just go into communion. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open up your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but he destroys the wicked. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen.